Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What is the perfect spooky movie? Believe it or not, we've got a scientific method to find out. In this special Halloween edition of the Midnight Myth Gauntlet, we're revisiting our perfect movie formula with a few of our spooky favorites. Tears will be shed. Hearts will be broken. Pumpkins will be spiced. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. Man, I'm excited to be back. It's been, how long has it been? I have no idea. It's been way too long. I do apologize, dear Midnight Myth listeners, for our lack of episodes. We had a whole slate of episodes planned for the month of October, Sadly, we have not been able to get to any of them. Our son had a cold and he got better and things were good. Then he got a stomach bug and that was bad. Plus, Laurel's job has changed. My job has changed. We have been running around crazy and that has sadly meant little time for our passion project, The Midnight Myth. But hey, we are here. We got a great episode planned. We are super excited to be back. Thank you all for your patience. We are so sorry for the irregular posting, podcasting, recording, uploading schedule. We are doing our best. You know, it's interesting. When Arthur was first born and he was a brand newborn, Laurel was able to wrap him up in this Harry Potter-like baby wrap sash and he would just fall asleep, and we were able to sit here and record. Well, now that just doesn't work anymore. It's been a lot harder to get these Midnight Myth episodes done. So again, thank you. We have a great episode planned. Now, for those of you who've been listening for a while, note that during, was it 2019 or 2020, whenever the pandemic hit, I don't remember what year it was. No, it was 2020, when the pandemic hit, Laurel and I came up with an idea, a scientifically verifiable, provable theorem on how to diagnose, discuss, and find perfect movies. We found that there was a lot of discourse around cinema that would say, quote, it's not a perfect movie, end quote, but, and then they would say why they loved a thing. And we always felt like, you know, if you're defining something by what it's not, it is incumbent upon you, logically, if we are to be Greek philosophers of cinema, to first define what the thing is 
to then define what it is not. If I am to say, my hand is not a hammer, I must know what a hammer is to say my hand is not that. And I must also say, I know what a hand is to say that it is not something. Well, we thought it'd be fun to revamp the formula in the spirit of it nearly being Halloween 2021 and not do the perfect movie gauntlet, but the perfect spooky movie gauntlet. Yeah, this is going to be really fun because I am a deep lover of Halloween and fall and all things spooky Halloween and such. So I'm really excited to throw a few of our spooky favorite movies through the gauntlet. And we've made uh, an amendment or two to the rubric to see how these movies hold up to our idea of the perfect spooky movie. So if we were to define it, it's not the perfect movie that happens to be spooky. And it's not the spookiest movie. It's the perfect spooky movie that we're looking for. So we'll go through the criteria so you can kind of understand how we're assessing these movies. And then we're going to run a few movies through it. And this is best when you guys participate as well. So Derek and I will probably have a lively debate and see what passes, but we want to hear from you too. So the best place to do that after this episode airs is to hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We would love to hear any comments, any feedback, or any other spooky movies that you want us to run through the gauntlet. Uh, so definitely hit us up there. While you're at it, if you haven't gotten around to leaving us a rating or a review yet, that would be so, so awesome, especially as we near the holiday season. That would be a wonderful present to us if you went over to Apple Podcasts or uh, Podchaser, wherever you listen, and drop us five stars and a few uh, words about why you like the podcast. That would just make us feel really, really great. And if you like us, tell a friend. And if you hate us, tell an enemy. Absolutely. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka has been working on the stand. We had a record date scheduled for our next stand episode. Sadly, we had to cut that off due to my son's sickness. And we are working on rescheduling that, Steve and myself. So as soon as we have a record date, you will know from the Twitter at the Wheel of Ka, we will be announcing that. Or my own personal Twitter, whatever, Derek at, you know, no one follows me, follows me dot com. Oh my God. My Twitter, Derek at no one follows me.com. That's my Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how a Twitter handle should be set up. All right. So here is how the spooky movie gauntlet will go. First, we'll go through our criteria. And this will mirror very similar to our perfect movie criteria with one very important twist. So the first aspect of the criteria is it must be a whole, complete, unified, contained narrative, start, middle, to end. It can't be the perfect spooky movie if it is a sequel or an adaptation of an adaptation that refers back to another text. For it to be a perfect spooky movie, it must be its own text. Point one. If it passes that, then it will go to the second one, which is atmospheric. This is making sure that it maintains an air of spooky atmosphere. Spooky can be defined in terms of Halloween, fall, uh, scary, a little bit unusual, all of the things that we think of when we think of the Halloween season. I always like to think of spooky as like scary meets cozy. 
like chill in the air, sweaters, uh, the crispy leaves, and sitting by the fire and feeling a little scared but enjoying it. Yeah, I like that. I'm down with that. That's very well said. Our next criteria is timeless. This you'll know from our regular Perfect Movie Gauntlet. So the movie has to be at least 10 years old. That way we can't get kind of swiped up in the moment to moment where we all think a movie is so great and amazing, but then over time we go back and look, you're like, oh, that wasn't really so good. So we felt 10 years was a good bar to really see if it holds up. The next one is zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. This means that the movie must create an impact on the culture. It must create a culture around it, or it must steer the culture in a new direction because of it. It can't be simply responding to that culture. A great example of this would be Ghostbusters. Nothing like that ever existed before, and it made a huge impact on the culture, so much so that everyone, when you go, especially at a Halloween party, and say, who are you going to call? We all know the answer. Ghostbusters. Exactly. And then, what was the last one? I'm blanking. The last one is technically outstanding. Technically outstanding. This is everything from acting, set design, script. We want to make sure that this is a technically well-made piece of art. Wonderful. So those are the criteria. Laurel, what's our first movie? Our first movie is sort of the queen, the grand dame of the kind of spooky Halloween slate, 31 Days of Halloween on ABC Family or Freeform. It's Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus. We couldn't get through this without throwing Hocus Pocus in there. I think there would be a riot in the streets. We're going out with the big guns first, too. Absolutely. Okay, so is this a whole unique contained narrative? I would say yes. There is uh, not a sequel, or at least not a sequel that is known to me, um, and it's not a sequel in itself. It stands on its own, so I think it passes the first criterion. It does somewhat rely on some semblance of the Salem witch trials. You do kind of need to know Salem, Massachusetts, the bunch of witches, I wouldn't say that it's 100% necessary, but it helps if it kind of grounds the narrative. I don't know if that gets us to rethink this first criteria or not. Well, all you really need to know about the Salem witch trials is that they happened, and we actually get a an early like scene happening at the Salem witch trials where the Sanderson sisters are being hanged. So we get the context for the narrative going forward, and so even if you had no idea that the Salem witch trials existed or what happened during them, you at least know what happened during this scene to the Sanderson sisters. And that's all that's actually important to the narrative. I think everything that is uh, important for you to understand is actually contained within the script. Okay, no counter argument. I figured, I didn't think that no, was a good one. That's worthwhile. I just wanted to throw it out there as a possibility. Atmospheric. I mean, I feel as if this movie oozes with the spooky meets cozy. It's set at Halloween. It has witches. It has a talking cat. It's got all of these atmospheric clues. It has someone not from there needing to go to Massachusetts to learn about this spooky world as sort of an audience surrogate stand in. I feel like this movie, if, if this movie doesn't pass the atmospheric category of our spooky movie gauntlet, then no movie can. So I'm willing to pass it. Yeah, absolutely. Everything you just said, I completely agree. It is 
somewhat scary, but it's also family friendly. So it gets at that very specific spooky feeling that's not just horror. It's not just set at Halloween, but it is extremely evocative and nostalgic. And I think that is a dimension of spooky too. It doesn't have to be, but it does contribute. I think anytime you put on Hocus Pocus for a certain generation of people, it's like, oh, it's fall now. It's spooky season. Agreed. Next one, timeless. I'll let you start because I have, I have my thoughts on this one. I know you do. So we know the movie's more than 10 years old. Um, so it at least passes that aspect of the criterion here. And I know you have thoughts on this. And for me, this is a movie that holds up extremely well, uh, particularly in certain uh, technical uh, pieces of it. Those particularly being the performances of the Sanderson sisters uh, and of Doug Jones, who's playing um, uh, Billy, Billy, what's his name? Billy Butcherson, Billy Butcherson, the zombie character. But especially uh, Bette Midler as Winifred Sanderson is just chewing the scenery and giving an iconic performance that just resonates throughout time and space. So while I think there are aspects of this movie that are so campy or that like today might not hold up and, you know, we'll talk about technically outstanding if we can get there. I think there are some questions that you can have about that. I do think that the movie is timeless. I think I watch it today and I still like laugh and I still get spooked at the same places that I did when I was a kid. So I have a, I have thoughts here. Yeah. I'm not willing to pass it on this one. I'm going to come out and say that I do not think this is a timeless movie at all. And I will tell you my reasons why. It came out, I was at the age of 12. I did not see it. I did not end up seeing it until several years later when I was probably somewhere between 18 to 19 years old. And I saw it and thought it was one of the worst movies I had ever seen. Full <sighs> stop. I then had put it out of my mind and had never given a second moment thought because I thought it was so bad. Then it kind of has this rebirth that at least I see of people in my generation or a few years in particular, a few years younger than me who saw it as children. Cause even at 12, I think I might've been a little too old, at least for my movie taste at the age of 12, I was not into hocus pocus kind of movies at that point. Um, if a 12-year-old might be, there's nothing wrong with that. I just wasn't. I think if I did see it at 12, I would have had the same opinion. But the people that were a few years younger than me that saw it as a child who said, this is their fall movie, and I thought, well, geez, you know, let me revisit this under mostly your advice, Laurel. And I must say, this is a movie that in order for it to have a timeless feel, it must hit your nostalgic goggles. It must be viewed through the lens of when I saw this as a kid in order for this movie to stand up. It is for children, and if you see it at the right age, at the right time, it's going to speak to you. But once you're past that time, if you don't see it at that moment, then you go back and watch it. It's just a bad movie. Not without charms. Not without things that aren't, it's not, it's not devoid of value. You know, in particular, Bette Midler is really amazing in her performance in it. And there are things about it that I can say have value that are positive, but there's not a single part of me, not a single cell in my body 
that gets excited, that wants to see it, when it hears that it's on, that doesn't roll my eyes. And I'm not a person that is cynical for the sake of being cynical. There's not a single thing of this movie that speaks to me. The kid who calls himself Ice stealing the Air Jordans, that doesn't hold up well. It just doesn't. Now, Bette Midler worshiping a guy in a terrible Satan suit, okay, that's still pretty funny. Oh, it's objectively hilarious. That's still pretty funny. But so much of this movie does not hold up. Most of the acting, not the Sailor Sisters, in particular Bette Midler, is pathetic. And I'm just saying it's bad. Most of the story is really trite. This movie, to me, is the definition of a movie for a time and not a movie that I'd consider timeless. So do you, so, so do you like it? Do you like Hocus Pocus? I think it's fine. <laughs> I just don't, I don't think it's a good movie. You know, like, I'm not here on the anti-Hocus Pocus. Like, if this movie is important to you and it brings you joy, please celebrate that movie. If I saw it with you as a kid, I'd probably feel the same. I just didn't have that experience. Okay. So uh, I, I think we know how Derek feels about Hocus Pocus. Is there anything else you would like to add? <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, it, this is not a personal attack on the movie. No, I completely understand. Um, so we are not passing it through Timeless, which uh, means... It that's is, the deal. We both have to unanimously agree, agree to pass. Yeah, I, I knew that this was going to happen. If you want to give me a rebuttal, I'd happily hear it. I don't want to give you a rebuttal because... I, like you said, I am watching this with nostalgia goggles and we've had this conversation offline. Like, I think, uh, you make a really valid point and you speak to it from a perspective outside of my perspective. So at this point I need external weigh in. I need people, uh, who don't have the nostalgia goggles that I have midnight myth fans to let me know what you think. Did you see the movie when you were older, maybe with your kids or, or not, maybe you just turned it on and it was on TV one day and you were seeing it for the first time when you weren't eight years old. What did you think? Uh, and that, that might help us, uh, put this debate to bed. Yeah. To me, it's like the never ending story. I will never be able to objectively say that movie that's, does or doesn't hold up. Yeah, that's fair. I never will. Cause it's the never ending story. It's, one of the reasons I like fantasy and myth, it's a foundational narrative to me. I would imagine a lot of people that would see that would probably think it doesn't hold up. Another one, like Labyrinth. I have no idea if that movie... Oh, it does not hold up. ...actually holds up. Yeah, no, it doesn't. But it means so much to me... Yeah, I get that. ...and who I am and how I grew into a person who loved myth and th folklore and fantasy and mythology and all of those things that I can't objectively evaluate... It's timelessness. So to me, I think Hocus Pocus is in that vein. To some people, Hocus Pocus is like a never-ending story to them. And to those people, I am so happy you have that. I don't. So I look at the movie and I'm like, whew, not for me. It is, however, the movie where I think most people in my generation learned the word virgin for the first time. And we all turned around and we're like, mom, dad, what does that mean? And our parents were like, Ew. see, for me, that movie was Monster Squad. <laughs> oh, OK. Nice. Which I would not pass on Timeless. <laughs> nice. Oh, but yeah, would have been an interesting thing to uh, interrogate in this list. Should we move on to our next one? Since we are not passing it, it has failed the gauntlet. There's no reason, I think, to put it through any further. Uh, Once it fails, torture. it fails. All yeah. right. 
We're moving on to our next one. I actually think a lot of the other ones on this list have a very high chance of passing, but especially this one. I don't want to like color it going in, but at least I think this one could make it through the uh, the gauntlet. Though we have to stick, we have to stick it up to all of the criteria. So this one is going to be the nightmare before Christmas. All right. So is it a whole unified contained narrative? One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Full story, beginning, middle to end, doesn't depend on anything before it or anything after it. It's its own mythic world where Holy there's, original. Yeah. yeah, where these Hollywood or Hollywood, these holiday universes exist, and that's where holidays come from. So I think I would pass it on that. Yep. Let's go to atmospheric. How do you feel about it? I mean, from the opening sequence when we pass through the doorway in the tree in the the holiday wood that's shaped like a pumpkin and then there is this swirl of wind in the darkness and we start to hear the the horns of the this is halloween theme playing and then we see oh my god my favorite thing ever is the the scarecrow with the pumpkin head that's like this way to halloween town it just immediately is so evocative of these very uh, fall, spooky, but also delightful uh, icons. These things that just feel like they remind you of your childhood, but they're also uh, just beautiful and fun to look at. And everything is totally original, but it's like things that you remember all reassembled into this new fantasy world. Uh, so yeah, I think it it evokes fall. I think it evokes the spooky atmosphere 100% and is constantly interested in like showing you some creepy, gross, or somehow macabre thing, and then twisting it by, you know, throwing a little bit of Christmas in there. So yes, I think spooky atmosphere, it's got it in spades. What do you think? I mean, I, a few things that I, I, I don't want to just blindly pass this one because fair, yeah. it's set in Halloween town. So on face value, yeah, of course, there's zombies and ghouls under the bed and there's the boogeyman and all of these really spooky things. There's a zombie that was made by a mad scientist who's one of the main characters in the movie. All of these things feel so spooky. The nightmare before Christmas, the way that it's responded in culture where people celebrate it, they have toys of it, there's costumes of it. All of it has that sort of spooky meets comfy, scary meets comfy vibe to it. A few things that might deter it from being the perfect atmospheric. One, a big theme of it is Christmas. A character spends a lot of time in Christmas and trying to recreate Christmas, which is not the vibe that you're going for. When, when you think of spooky, when we think of the perfect atmospheric spooky, you don't think Santa Claus and you don't think Mrs. Santa Claus. Um, the other thing that I want to just wonder about out loud does it being a musical detract from the spooky atmosphere by making it a little too tipped on the cozy and a little too far away from the scary? Those are my two points. Now, I think the Christmas point's not a good one because the King of Halloween hijacks Christmas and makes it very spooky. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm willing to give myself that point but I do want to wonder out loud, can a musical also be the perfect spooky atmospheric movie 
or does that push it a little too much on the cozy, too far away from the scary? I mean, interesting question. I would point out that a lot of the music in The Nightmare Before Christmas is spooky, and some of it is because it's singing about what it's like to live in Halloween Town, and the rest of it is because it's just Denny Elfman music, which tends to be really kind of spooky. And you also have the Tim Burton aesthetic running through all of it, so it's not just that we have pumpkins. It's not just that we have gravestones. It's that they're gnarly and old and antique and... Uh, spindly fingers and pinstripes and spiders and and things in the way that Tim Burton only can create them uh, that evoke this very, very spooky um, and special vibe. So I I think the question about the music is interesting, but I think the fact that it's Danny Elfman music um, tips it back toward the spooky for me. I guess the other way to put it, it's always going for the most obvious surface level spooky aesthetic and the spooky atmospheric aesthetic in that you have a skeleton, pumpkin skeleton king, you have a clown with a tearaway face and all of these things and all of these beautiful, wonderful songs that, you know, as soon as you get, like the spookiest part of that to me in that entire movie is in the very beginning song. That's where I think it's at its spookiness, where it introduced oh, sure. yeah. Halloween Town. And even in then, you know, it says life's no fun without a good scare. That's our job, but we're not mean in this town of Halloween saying it's not that spooky. You know, like even then, it's like, yeah, it looks spooky. It's spooky on the surface, but this really isn't truly spooky. We're all just a bunch of nice people that happen to be monsters and vampires and whatnot. And I don't know if I'm willing to, I'm talking myself into this point. I can't believe this. This is wild. The Nightmare Before Christmas isn't spooky enough for you. You want to pass it? I do want to pass it. Let's pass it. Okay, we're going to pass it through atmospheric. Is that okay? It's totally okay. Okay, cool. So up next is Timeless. You want to start or you want me to? Why don't you start? Uh, The movie's definitely older than 10 years. I don't think there's a single frame of this movie that doesn't hold up. I think this movie is very timeless. This is something that when I think it's appropriate for my son, I can't wait to share with him and to sing Halloween and Christmas songs together at the same time. I think this movie has tremendous merit. I think it 100% is a timeless movie. I hope one day Arthur, if he ever wants children when he grows up, I hope Arthur shares the movie with his children in the way that movies like Um, It's a Wonderful Life have been passed down to me or Wizard of Oz have been passed down to me. I think this is a movie that could have that timelessness to it. Yeah, I think it's extraordinary in the work of art that it is, in the originality of it, in the the technical execution of it. But it also, I mean, I think just has a really very beautiful message about living your authentic life. And we did an entire episode on it. It was our first Halloween special ever. So I would go back and listen to that if you haven't. Uh, It was a really fun one to interrogate and and fun to explore what Jack's philosophy was. But I think it does hold up in more ways than just the technical execution. I think it holds up in the fact that it's saying 
you know, you should have time to explore and time to screw up and time to try on different personalities and different interests and different philosophies. But at the end of the day, you're still you and you should love who you are. Um, so yeah, I would, I would call it timeless for sure. Done. Easy pass. Next one. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. So interesting thought here on it. it this one seems like an easy no brainer too because Nightmare Before Christmas has its own zeitgeist. There are Nightmare Before Christmas cosplayers. There are people that watch the movie every single year. It is super prolific. It has still a vibrant merch and et cetera, strap my phone, that people still participate actively in the um, viewership of this movie and still really love it. The one, the one thing that I would say that I question is, is it taking, no, you know, I, I was going to have a counter argument to this. And as I started framing it in my mind, I also deconstructed it and realized it was a bad argument. So I'm going to keep it to myself. Okay. I think this one is very much a zeitgeist forming project. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we already talked about kind of the Tim Burton aesthetic. And while this is a Tim Burton creation, he was a producer and he created the characters. He didn't actually direct it. It was directed by Henry Selleck, if I remember correctly. Um, but it is integral in, I think, creating this and Beetlejuice are some really like early examples of Tim Burton coming into his own in terms of defining his aesthetic, which then would go on to be extraordinarily influential. And, you know, eventually he would get really glossy and get, um, all these Disney contracts and make movies like Alice in Wonderland and Dumbo. But early on, he was making these really passionate, really original projects that laid out this kind of Edward Gorey inspired, but still very unique um, Tim Burton aesthetic that absolutely is zeitgeist forming. And I think the the culmination of that is The Nightmare Before Christmas. That is like if you walked into the hot topic at the time, oh that was the thing that was everywhere. Let me tell you, I had everything. I had like my Jack Skellington beanie. I had a Nightmare Before Christmas purse. I had tons of those little pins all over. Yeah, I was obsessed. Yeah, it is, it is one of those movies that catches that lightning in a bottle and leaves an imprint on culture that lives on beyond it. So yes, I would say it is definitely a zeitgeist forming movie. Awesome. Um, so next one, last one is technically outstanding. I think this one is obvious for me. Every single shot, every frame is, like you said, a work of art. And the incredible technical feat that it was to pull this movie off from the stop motion animation uh, perspective is really a marvel. When you go back and you watch like behind the scenes documentaries and you see how many different heads they had for Jack to perspire to portray the different expressions on his face and how seamless it looks. And it took years for them to film this, to just to the production aspect of it. And it, it pays off so well because it just looks so, so good. And that's just one aspect of the technical marvel that it is. It's got the beautiful score and beautiful music by Danny Elfman. It has wonderful vocal performances. It's got the great Catherine O'Hara uh, and it it really, I think, uh, it it stands the test of time in terms of the technical achievement. No, no counter argument. We have our first perfect, perfect spooky, spooky movie. movie. <laughs>
Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't feel great about passing it. There's something about a character learning the true meaning of Christmas being dubbed the perfect spooky movie that just feels off to me. Well, I also, I've said this before, I think Christmas is spookier than people give it credit for. Look at Christmas Carol being like the ultimate Christmas story. Uh, It's a ghost story and it's horribly spooky. So I personally think that Christmas is just as spooky as Halloween, just in a different way. Yeah, not buying that. (laughs) I'm totally not buying that. I don't feel great about it, but I'm willing to accept the criteria was set. We passed the Nightmare Before Christmas. Next movie. The next movie is Scream. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Yeah. Scream? Oh, man. Tell me, do you like scary movies? What's your favorite scary movie? (laughs) (laughs) No, and we've lost all listeners at this point. Yeah, that was, uh, I'm sure, a wonderful thing to have whispering in your headphones. <laughs> so Scream, whole unified contained narrative. Whoa. It's not. <sighs> oh, my God. I put it on this list thinking, like, everything has to pass through number one to even be put on this list. But it's it, its entire existence has to be predicated on a knowledge of the slasher genre. Like, I think you could probably watch it and enjoy it if you had never seen A Nightmare on Elm Street or uh, Friday the 13th, but you wouldn't actually get it, right? I don't know, because I watched all those 80s slasher movies. It is, it's a movie that is a, on one hand, a celebration of a genre, and on another hand, completely deconstructing those tropes and satirizing. Yeah. And satirizing them. It does go to great lengths to explain those tropes true within the movie. So you have characters explaining the logic of the slasher horror genre. So that way, if you don't know it, you can be familiar with it and familiar with how the movie is in dialogue with it. The character's motivation, like the characters in that would not be doing what they're doing if they hadn't been obsessed with scary movies. That was the thing that drove in particular the villains. So this is a tough one. Yeah, I um, it, and it hurts my heart too because I think it could probably pass quite a few of the other criteria. And I think certainly it passes zeitgeist forming because it absolutely is, it, it, not only is it, yes, responding to an entire genre, but it becomes in many ways the um, the ultimate deconstruction of that genre and also one of the shining pinnacle examples of the genre at the same time. It's doing something really extraordinary in that way. But I, I think we have to fail it at Whole and Unified. Whoa, okay. That's the first time we've never had a movie pass criteria number one. If you feel that we should fail it, I'm going to support you. I think it would have failed zeitgeist forming as well. Interesting. Okay. Because for the same reason is that it's responding to a zeitgeist and maybe making a little nudge on that zeitgeist, but not actually forming its own zeitgeist. Okay. Yeah, that's a fair argument. So I think it would have eventually failed that one too. So I think we're okay failing it, which is tough because it is my favorite slasher movie of all time. Mine too. And it's certainly atmospheric too. It's got 
not only the fact that it's a scary movie, but it also has a little bit of the humor and a little bit of the coziness that I always look for in a spooky movie. Uh, and it, it it has nostalgia as well. So it has a lot of the things that swirl around and create the kind of pumpkin spice latte of spooky. So um, yeah, I'm bummed to fail it, but I think we have to. Yeah, and other than the teenagers dressing like a product of their time, because that's how you dress teenagers yeah. in a movie, it definitely holds up. We've just Absolutely. recently rewatched all the Scream movies and we're like, man, these are so good. Oh my God, they're so good. Wow, we're failing Scream. All right. Moving on. That was fast. That was fast. Uh, okay, moving on. Are you ready for the next one? Yeah, what's the next movie? The next one is The Shining. So this is like the the full balls out horror movie that we actually have on the list. Like Scream is technically a horror movie, but it's not quite on the same level as like full out horror. And so we wanted to make sure there was at least one represented on our list. And we wanted to go with The Shining, which is considered by some people like the greatest horror movie ever made, considered by me one of, if not the greatest horror movies ever made, at least one of my top three favorites. Um, so I am excited to talk about it. We've also done a full episode on this one. Uh, that was a Halloween episode two or three years ago. And so I highly recommend listening to that for that conversation. And also Derek is a huge Stephen King fan over here doing a Stephen King podcast. So definitely something that we have some love and possibly some bias for, but we'll try and give it an objective um, uh, pass through here. That's the thing with the criteria. It does not allow you to let you it's have, dispassionate. have yeah. something pass through your biases. This is why Hocus Pocus failed. Yeah, exactly. The Shining is a whole contained and complete narrative. Yes. Though it is an adaptation of a book, one does not need to know anything about the book to enjoy the movie. In fact, it was my favorite horror movie long before I even knew it was a Stephen King book because my parents were a big fan of this movie. When I was young, I was getting into a lot of the 80s slasher movies, um, the Freddy Kruegers, the Jasons, and et cetera, and the Mike Myers, the Halloweens. My parents saw this and said, you know, you should really watch The Shining. And they showed me The Shining. And I'm like, all those other movies stink now because I've seen yeah, The Shining. I'm yeah. like, nope, horror, horror has new meaning after watching this movie. I definitely think it passes the first one. Absolutely. So next one is going to be atmospheric. How do we feel about this as spooky atmosphere? Well, I took the lead on the last one. Yeah, do you mind? Um, so I... I do want to pass it through this one. And the reason for that is that as far as uh, horror movies go and scary movies go, again, I don't think spooky and scary are the same thing. I think they share a lot of things in common, but I think this one has elements of both. Yes, there is horror. Yes, there is terror. But there is also that very specific, very unique feeling of spooky uh, that is sometimes cozy, right? So we have the cabin fever element of The Shining, uh, where we have characters who are stuck inside uh, a, a confined space, even though it's a sprawling confined space in the Overlook Hotel. They have access to whatever food they need in the pantry. There is a maze out back, a labyrinth that they can navigate. Uh, we have Jack trying to write his book. It's a family story, but it's also got incredible terror at the heart of it. And so there is something very specific about uh, the setting 
and the way that the technical elements come together to create the sense of cabin fever. So the slow, long takes, the creepy music, all of it just evokes that very, very specific feeling. We also have the changing of the seasons. So like being stuck inside when it's snowing outside, it doesn't have to be fall to be spooky. It can absolutely be accessed in all different types of the year, all different uh, times of the year. So I think this one gets it. Uh, What do you think? I think the core strength of this movie is its ability to create atmosphere, Mm -hmm. is its ability to make a big place feel small. And I have to think atmospheric for spooky. There is no better example on this list, save for maybe Hocus Pocus, but for different reasons, that passes. So yes, I would pass this. Perfect. Awesome. So we have passed it through atmospheric. Um, Timeless. We already know it's more than 10 years old. Um, but what do you think about Timeless? I have one issue here. Yeah. And it's not about the movie in terms of just watching it because every part of this movie holds up. But what is not timeless are the stories of psychological abuse Stanley Kubrick and Jack Nicholson did on Shelley Duvall on her character and how that affected her going forward. That has not really aged well. No. They did their best to scare and torture this poor woman in order to get the performance that they got, which is undoubtedly a phenomenal performance. But hearing the stories of how bad her treatment was on set does give me some pause on the timelessness The acting is timeless. It still is as terrifying as it's ever been. Every single frame of a Stanley Kubrick movie of everyone I've ever seen holds up, holds up incredibly well. Stanley Kubrick is a master storyteller and film is the craft that he is one of, if not the best ever, especially of those late sixties to, you know, mid eighties art tours who are known for putting their style and spin into their movies. So in that respect, it is incredibly timeless. It's still scary. But I wonder if we have to take into account the stories of abuse that Stanley Kubrick put one of his stars to and wonder, can we call it timeless if the performance is so good, but it drives an actor to a mental breakdown? Should we allow that to pass timelessness? I think that's a really, really good point and not something I had considered. I also look back at the movie and I get really frustrated. And, you know, part of this might be, you know, having read the book and knowing how it comes out. I don't know if that has colored my uh, perceptions of this part. But uh, when Dick Halloran shows up to save Danny uh, and spoiler alert for The Shining and he he gets stabbed in the back and just gets unceremoniously dispatched Uh, which is an unfortunate ending for the only character of color and feels uh, really dismissive of that character. So that's, that's something that also does not feel good looking back at. I don't really understand why that choice was made. Um, And, and looking at it from a contemporary perspective, it feels really uh, insensitive and not particularly thoughtful. So that, That is also a thing that gives me pause in terms of um, holding it up as timeless. 
So do you think that those are enough cracks? I guess it depends on how how we originally meant to define timeless. Yeah, I mean, we have to really purely of evaluating the text itself. That was our intention when yeah. we created it. Yeah. But we realize a text is bigger than just the text that there are human beings making it and there are political, social, economic concerns that can play into it. And, you know, if we start to hold back on timeless for movies that turn out they're exploitive, that could potentially mean we could never pass any movie because all movies have some history of prejudice, discrimination, or exploitation. It's sadly baked into this art form that we love and celebrate. So I wonder if it's just to me, the stories about what they put Shelley Duvall through were so bad that it made me think, is it okay? You know, whereas in other movies, maybe it was swept under the rug and we just don't know about it. In other movies, maybe everyone thought it was okay, you know, and never talked about it or of other forms of abuse. I've heard that the crew members in Hollywood are on the verge of striking to get fair wages, fair hours, work-life balance, benefits, basic things like that, that don't exist in some of Hollywood's biggest studios the people who are doing the lighting and the or makeup regional theater or yeah. And building the sets are just treated like worker bees and are just pumped for their creative output and then discarded when they burn out. So there's an element that says, if we fail it on the timelessness for this, are we opening up a slippery soap where we can't really pass any movie because they're all exploitive. And maybe, maybe that's the right thing to say too. I don't know. Maybe that is, but it's worth thinking. You also bring up an interesting point about Dick Halloran and his dispatchment. It doesn't happen that way in the book. It does in the movie. In the movie, it adds to the sense of pure peril that Danny and and his mother are in, that we thought someone was coming to help them and no one and nothing can unless they can help themselves. While I certainly think it's a it's a choice that is unfortunate to that character, different from the book. And if done today would be probably a little differently. It doesn't, it doesn't ring as bad to fail it on timelessness for me. It it's close, but I wouldn't say it goes there because it does make sense in the narrative of this movie that this movie is saying these two characters are in it on their own. If they can't figure out a way to save themselves, no one can. No one's coming to help them. There is no help. And that does add to the terror and the suspense of the movie at the expense of the character of color, which is not okay, but at least it's not totally nonsensical, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I think what I'm gleaning from this conversation is that, you know, we we set this criterion in the first place to say, you know, that we wanted to evaluate it based on the like timelessness of the text in a vacuum, essentially. But what I'm really learning here is that text is context. And I think we can only really evaluate something as timeless if we are looking at uh, how the times have shifted around it. And so I think your question about the Shelley Duvall abuse is really important because you know we know the context now, and that changes how we view that performance. For example, would we, if we were doing the same thing, but superhero movies, would we have to fail 
all of the Brian Singer X-Men movies right. because of Brian Singer and his allegations of sexual abuse against minors. You know, would we? Or would we just evaluate those movies on their own merits and decide to pass them in the same semblance if we were applying the timelessness metric? And I don't know if there's a easy answer, but I will tell you, I feel a little more inclined on The Shining to say, no, it's not okay to do yeah, that yeah. to someone just to get a performance. And now that I know about it, I can't put that knowledge back. Yeah. Like I can't just pretend like I haven't learned that Stanley Kubrick tortured an actor for a performance. That that just seems so messed up to me that one of the scenes where the ax comes through in the door was a scene where they didn't tell her that was happening. So that reaction was her legitimate terror at an ax being close to her face. And that is, it's deeply unprofessional. It's deeply immoral. I mean, that's, that's painful to hear that. So I think I, and it could, and it could hurt someone. Yeah. It's unsafe. Yeah. Psychologically, but also like you could ax someone in the face too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I am inclined to agree with you and that we have to, in this moment, fail the shining. Oof. This is getting, this is different. I did not expect this. I didn't expect any of this. I expected most of these things were going to pass. Um, but uh, that's the, that's the beauty of the gauntlet. It is dispassionate and it's scientific and it doesn't care about your feelings. Yeah. All right. But here's the thing then. Am I a hypocrite if I rewatch the shining? Oh my God. That is another can of worms. That's... Moving on, moving on. Okay. This is supposed to be fun. Um, okay. I've got, Two more movies. You got two more movies in you, or you want to do one more movie? Let's just do one more. One more? Okay. I got one more movie, and it's a good one. We're going out on a good one. I have no idea how this one's going to fare after all of these conversations. Young Frankenstein. I'm sorry. Uh, it's Frankenstein. This one's not going to pass the first one either. Oh, God. Dang it. It is not a whole contained. It's a sequel to Frankenstein. Oh, my God. It it fails the first one easily. Why, why didn't we think of that before we did this? I have no idea. It's a phenomenal comedy, spooky movie. I'm a huge, huge admirer of Mel Brooks, but rarely is he doing a whole unified contained narrative. Yeah. It's always usually a satire or a mocker, mockery or in response to something. I think Spaceballs is one of the funniest movies ever. History of the World Part 1 one of my top five favorite movies and young Frankenstein. My dad showed me this when I was young and oh, I absolute genius laughed, but it is not going to pass the whole unified contained narrative. Yeah. Because it's not only in response to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the novel, but it's also satirizing all of the, uh, you know, early Frankenstein films like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. So yeah, it, you only, really can have the full experience of it if you're familiar not only with the base story that it's based on, but the earlier cinematic adaptations of it. And it doesn't waste too much time trying to explain it so that we right. could go beyond it. Well, yeah, as soon as you hear him say it's pronounced Frankenstein, you're like, that's hilarious because I know it's pronounced Frankenstein. 
Well, what was the other one then? Cabin in the Woods. All right, Cabin in the Woods. Let's go. All right, is Cabin in the Woods a whole unified and contained narrative? I don't know. It's another one that's like Scream that is predicated upon you knowing the slasher or thriller genre because it, it it's it's based on the idea that we all know these tropes, that we all know these characters exist uh, in every horror or slasher movie and that they will do the same things over and over again and that, spoiler alert for Cabin in the Woods, that's all serving some greater purpose and some uh, angry gods. Yeah, so the whole idea that they're pumping chemicals into the house to get the young people to behave in the stereotypical ways of a horror movie certainly is not whole unique and contained. Right. A lot of the tropes that they are poking at and deconstructing and doing so in such successful ways require the foreknowledge of knowing this. You know what? The tough thing is it's hard to pass a satire through this because a satire is by definition something you must know the source material. For example, Aristophanes, a Greek comedy playwright, uses the character Socrates in one of his plays to mock Socrates. If you don't know who Socrates is, none of that works. You have to know Socrates to know when they're mocking Socrates. It's a similar concept. You've got to know that the teenager that has sex is going to die and the teenager that's a virgin will not in order for the tropes that they play with to make sense. So it's going to have to fail that. Yeah. Wow. So the only movie that passed that we picked is the one where it's about learning the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. I think, I think I feel, I feel really weird about this. I feel pretty weird about it too. I'm really interested to hear what our listeners think. Uh, I thought they'd all pass, I thought, except for Hocus. I thought I, was, most of them were going to pass. I knew Hocus Pocus wasn't timeless. Yeah. But the other ones, I'm like, the other ones might oh, be Oh, The Shining easy. easy, Young Frankenstein Easy, Scream Easy. Cabin in the Woods. How do you? What do you feel about that? It's one of the most fun horror movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. So I am shocked. Here we are at the end of the evening, and we have only one perfect spooky movie. Well, let me put a positive spin on this. Yeah. It's not supposed to be easy to pass. No. The whole idea in this is, for one, for us to have fun, engaging debate. Yeah. Hopefully you find it fun and engaging. And two, for us to learn something about the movies as we put them through these tests to determine if some of our favorites, some of the things that resonate with us, can get that mantle of perfection. Now, is our methodology certainly unscrutable? No. You could scrutinize our methodology in fact, we would welcome that. Yeah, absolutely. We're always looking for feedback on our methodology. We're making this up as we go along. Mm-hmm. This may not be the right criteria, but we think it's fun criteria to debate the perfect movie. So the fact that so many of these movies failed tells me that it's really hard to make the perfect scary movie. It does. It seemed easy to us, but in practicality, it's very, very challenging. Yeah, and there were a few movies uh, that we sort of touched on in this conversation, but that we didn't end up running through the gauntlet. 
uh, such as Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice, some that we mentioned offhand during our conversation tonight. Um, that's because we have done those movies before on our regular Perfect Movie Gauntlet. And if I remember correctly, Beetlejuice somehow passed through the Perfect Movie Gauntlet and we felt real weird about it at the end of it. We were like, how on earth did we just call Beetlejuice a perfect movie? And, you know, we just didn't want to retread all the same ground, but I also feel like it's very possible that that's one that could have made it through tonight's testing criteria. So I would love to hear from our listeners if you have any ideas, things that we didn't run through uh, for things that could stand up as the perfect spooky movie. Uh, throw those on Twitter, shout us out, drop us a line, let us know what you think, um, because we would love to engage in that debate with you online. Um, and we would love to hear your reasoning for why things would be considered the perfect spooky movie. I'm also always looking for spooky things to watch around this time of year. So anything else, Derek, from you? Have a happy Halloween. And until next time, be kind. Be kind.